No one ever told her that she couldn't plant the church. This church was founded almost 160 years ago in downtown St. Louis. In its early years, the leader of the largest and most prominent ministry of the church was a woman by the name of Mary Jane Townsend. She had been born a slave in Tennessee and, like many slaves, had escaped and made her way to St. Louis, which during the Civil War was a Union city under Union occupation and therefore a safe place for escaped slaves. Um, Mary Jane was a domestic cook. She didn't have an education. She didn't have a lot of money. But what she did was she started a mission called the Leonard Avenue Mission. She was the, the, the networker. She was the relator. She was the gatherer, and she led this ministry. It later became known as the Leonard Avenue Sunday School. It was at the location now where Chaffetz Arena is at St. Louis University. And during those decades of ministry, she actively built up this ministry, providing education in reading and writing and arithmetic and the Bible to former slaves who had no education in order to help give them a life and a future here in St. Louis. Out of that ministry grew uh, what became Berea Presbyterian Church as Memorial had had gathered about a third of its members by that point were African-American. In the 1890s, most of those black members discerned that they could best reach black St. Louis by being in a culturally black church instead of a culturally predominantly white church. And so they planted Berea Presbyterian Church. And Mary Jane Townsend, there's an article in the basement from the New York Observer in 1910 about what she did every day for, or every week for years, for decades, she saved up her earnings working as a domestic servant for a St. Louis household. She spent as little as possible on herself and saved up her money, and she saved up, I believe it was $3,000 in order to buy a manse for Berea Presbyterian Church so that this black Presbyterian church in a racist culture could, could, could have a chance of pulling in the best talent out of Princeton Seminary for their pastors. A manse was the house next to the church that was provided free of charge to the pastor and his family. $5,000 could build a Carnegie library. This was $3,000 from a woman who was born a slave, planting a church. She never preached. She was never ordained. And nobody told her that as a black woman, escaped slave, domestic servant, she couldn't be used of God to put a church here in St. Louis in the Mill Creek Valley that would be instrumental in building a middle-class black community here in St. Louis. It was women from that church that she planted who formed the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA to provide training and housing and job skills to black women making their way from the countryside to St. Louis. And she was instrumental in founding what became St. Louis's educated black middle class. God used her tremendously as a woman willing to do whatever it took to serve Jesus and his church, to be on mission with God. Today, we're going to look at one of the most debated passages concerning the role of women in the church, and particularly in ministry leadership, particularly the question of women preaching in worship. My intention is to look at the passage, introduce the three main approaches to the passage, talk about some of the strengths that they all have, and then raise some of the questions that each one of them has to answer. 
Um, and since my own views, I've at one point or another held all three of these views, which means that two-thirds of the time, at least I have been wrong. And so it's humbling, and so I just pray God will give you the grace to hear whatever he wants you to hear, and he will give you the grace to check email when he doesn't want you to hear something. Because I'm either wrong then, or I'm wrong now, or I'm wrong both times, or somehow, in a freak of nature, God makes it so that all of these, and somehow, in some form or another, are actually right. But this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 8. It's the word of God. I, that is Paul, I therefore want the men in every place to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or dissension. Likewise, the women to adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and soundness of mind, not with hair braided or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works appropriate for women professing the fear of God. Let a woman learn in stillness and all subjection but to teach, I do not permit a woman, nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in stillness. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, but the woman, having been deceived, came into transgression. However, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with soundness of mind. What do we see here? There's one thing here that the original readers in their cultural context would have been freaking out over. And it's not the one that you're probably freaking out over. What they would have been freaking out over is the one command, the one imperative in this passage, which is let a woman learn in stillness and all subjection. And that phrase, let a woman learn, does not mean give her permission to learn in the sense of allow, but he's saying a woman ought to learn. Why would this have been remarkable? Well, it would have been shocking to them because in antiquity, in, in ancient Judaism, it was taught that it was better to, to train a dog than to train a woman. And teaching, uh, learning in antiquity was always for the purpose of doing something. It was equipping, it was training for some ministry or some task or some role. He's saying, let a woman learn. A woman ought to learn, but, but women were not welcome typically in synagogues. They were required to be completely physically separated from men. They might have been in a separate building altogether, but often they were simply excluded. Jewish boys and Jewish men were required to learn and study the Bible, but, but women were not required. And in fact, Rabbi Eliezer went so far as to forbid ever teaching the word of God to a girl or to a woman. And his view became the dominant view in ancient Judaism. And yet here, Paul is saying that is wrong. Let a woman learn. He's not only allowing it, he is requiring it. It's the one imperative in the passage that women in the church be equipped. As we enter into this thing, and we look at the thing that we're going to really struggle, that's going to be shocking to 21st century Westerners, we need to start from a place of charity, realizing that this passage has always been shocking to someone in their cultural context. And an ex so if we start with an acceptance that as followers of Jesus, we can come to different conclusions about certain things, that will help. You know, we have different beliefs about baptism. Do we baptize infants of believers or just believers? 
Now, Christians have different interpretations of the book of Revelation. They differ on whether God created humanity by fiat or through some other means, or whether the earth is very young or very old, whether certain charismatic gifts are still given, and, and over whether or not a church should be governed by a bishop, by a congregational vote, or by a body of elected elders. We accept these differences from our fellow Christians because we want to love one another and, and find unity in the core essentials of the authority of God's word, this, the, 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 the image of God in humanity, the reality of the fall, our universal sinfulness and desperate need for the Holy Spirit to invade our hearts and give us faith and bring us to repentance because Jesus will save all those who come to him and he instructs us in his word how to do that as the church. Those are core things. Other things we often disagree about. The denomination into which we are in the process of entering, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, has decided that the question of ordaining women is a non-essential. In 1981, they just said, we are not going to fight over this, and we are not going to judge anybody over this. It's up to the church, it's up to the presbytery, whatever you think God is saying in Scripture, we're going to allow for a diversity of beliefs, because we're going to be, you know, have, have unity in essentials. Um, but in non-essentials, we're going to have love and charity and freedom and in all things love. So my prayer is that as I go through these three different approaches to this passage, that you will try to see how a Christian could see it from each of these three perspectives, even if you're certainly convinced that two of them are probably wrong. <laughs> so that's where we're going. Because we see this remarkable command that a woman learned and yet we also see a very controversial instruction here. Uh, Paul writes, but to teach, and this is a very wooden translation from the Greek, but to teach, I do not permit a woman, nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in stillness. Now pretty much every word in that verse has been debated. There are books written on this, and I have read a lot of them, and they all disagree with each other. So my intention in summarizing the three approaches, uh, is that you would be able to appreciate all of them and also have a clearer sense of where you land on that and why you land there. Um, because we're trying to, to figure out where we are as a church as we're asking a question that we never had uh, the opportunity or the need to ask before. I'm going to look at three views. The complementarian view, the egalitarian view, and what some have called the soft complementarian view, though I'm not sure anybody likes to be called soft, or some don't like to be called complementarian. So um, I'm going to start with a complementarian view, which is the view uh, that I uh, advocated 20 years ago in a book with InterVarsity Press called The World According to God. Um, it's the view that um, our old denomination held, and it's the view that I have believed and taught throughout most of my public ministry. Again, I have at some point held all three of these views. So the first is the complementarian view, which is called complementarian because it starts with a focus or an emphasis on the, complementar the complementarity of male and female, that, that men and women are equal, but they are not interchangeable. And so therefore, they're going to notice gender differences when it relates to certain offices within the church. I am going to give you first this mainstream complementary view, and I'm going to give it in its most nuanced form um, because I want 
to present it in its, its best possible light. There are other complementarians who have a much stronger view, but I'm going to give you the view that I was taught at Covenant Seminary in the 1990s by David Jones. Uh, here we note Paul's statement that a woman must not teach or have authority or usurp authority over a man. The view uh, we'll note, this approach notes that the context here is corporate worship. The men are being told in every place, that is every worship service, to lift up their hands in prayer. Um, in its best form, this view sees Paul's discussion limited to the authoritative preaching office, the authoritative teaching that happens in this context of corporate worship. That's the passage's world of discourse, and therefore the authoritative preaching office of pastor or elder or priest is in view. The best advocates of this understanding conclude that Paul is not making a universal prohibition on women teaching or holding authority over a man. That would contradict Philip's daughter's prophesying, like we read about. It would imply that God somehow sinned by giving Deborah leadership over Israel. Uh, and so some advocates of this approach may even allow women to teach mixed classes of men and women. They may allow women to read in worship, to speak in a non-sermonic non manner in a worship service, to lead a youth group or a campus ministry, perhaps even be ordained as a deaconess. In the Roman Catholic Church, this approach still allows for women to serve Christ occasionally as a nun or an abbess, or as a catechist, a lector, an altar server, an acolyte, or a lay minister. It's only the authoritative teaching office of elder or pastor or priest that is restricted because the context is speaking in the context of the authoritative teaching in a worship service. And so this complementarian understanding also then notes that Paul gives his reason his reason is grounded not in their momentary circumstance, but in the order of creation itself in Genesis 1 through 3. It's therefore not a temporary instruction, they would say, but is eternal as creation itself. For Paul writes, the man was formed first and then the woman. That's his reason. Notice that this approach is not claiming any superiority of men over women. Rather, the idea is simply that for this one role, God had a man in view. This is because it reflects, in their view, God's original design for men and women to complement one another, equal but not interchangeable. This view also notes the historical precedent. In the Old Testament, Aaronic priests and Levites alike who assisted them were always male by God's intent. In the Roman Catholic tradition, they would add that the original 12 apostles Christ chose were all men and used that as a basis for this teaching. This approach has the strengths of following what in an English translation is typically going to seem like the apparent clear meaning of the text. It also has history behind it because for 1600 years, Christians only ordained male priests. It was not really discussed except for some, some small groups here and there. Um, and so this complementarian understanding at its best uh, says that in, is, is in one form or another the official teaching of the Southern Baptist Convention of the Presbyterian Church in America, and of such conservative leaders as Wayne Grudem, John Piper, and Kevin DeYoung. And I want to add, I'm giving you the best possible view, because it would be wrong for somebody who sincerely holds this view because they really believe this is the clear teaching of the Bible. It would be wrong for any sibling in Christ to accuse them of being sexist or of being you know, uh, uh, in any way motivated by misogyny. Um, and that's, people throw that word around, but we're a family of God. Uh, we don't judge people's motives. 
especially when their motive is to be very sensitive to what Scripture says. Now, I'm going to say that for all of these views. <laughs> um, that's the complementarian view, that this particular office, God has a man in view. The egalitarian reading is a different reading. It's the one that I would have held as a young Christian. Uh, much of my reading over the past year has been reading egalitarian works, and I have been learning a ton of stuff. It's really fascinating. Uh, the egalitarian view sees men and women as equal in all areas, and they're emphasizing not the complementarity that we see at creation, but the equality as men and women made in God's image at creation. And so they would see men and women being ordained at any ministry level without any view toward uh, their biological sex. This egalitarian approach starts by pointing out that the term to hold authority over a man that is used here is not used anywhere else in the Bible. And so we can't understand what Paul is saying by looking at how this word is used elsewhere in the Bible because it's never used elsewhere in the Bible. Um, this is not the Bible's ordinary term for authority. So we have to look at, at classical and later Koine Greek literature to figure out what this means. It does mean to take authority over something. And when it's taking authority over objects, it just means taking authority over the money or taking authority over uh, this group of things. But they will point out that whenever it is used of a person taking authority over another person in Greek literature, it is usually a negative thing. Not something good like opening up the Bible and explaining what it means to a group of Christians, but something that's negative. In fact, the term to hold authority over was used as a euphemism for murder. Now, that's not the context here. Paul had no reason to explain that he does not allow a woman to teach or murder a man. Um, it's clearly not what it's saying here, but they will point out that when you look elsewhere, whenever it's used of a person taking authority over another person, it's in the sense of having owned them or put them in their place. It's an abusive kind of term, and, and hence uh, a, a picture of domineering or mastering another person, of misusing authority or taking authority without authorization, and hence the King James Version always had this translated, I do not allow a woman to usurp authority over a man because it has a negative tinge what's being described. So the egalitarian under, understanding concludes that Paul is not here prohibiting women from preaching or holding office, what he's prohibiting is a woman usurping the authority of the church, stepping up to take over when they haven't yet learned the basics of Christian doctrine, uh, domineering behaviors toward men that dishonor the position that God gives to men and women within the creation order. For a woman to dominate a man and put him in his place would violate God's design at creation, that women and men complement each other, and that the woman is a helper, not an abuser, not a dominator. And so this view um, will often then try to develop this social context within Ephesus because Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote this letter there, and Ephesus, they would point out, is the center of the cult of Artemis. Artemis is uh, the, uh, the, the same as the Egyptian god of Isis, some think, or the Romans, Diana. Um, they might suggest that the temple of Artemis centered in Ephesus was a female cult with a female priesthood. They might then suggest that women who were dominant within the local religion would, by coming to Christ, then assume a level of dominance, which Paul is then trying to restrain here. 
Um, we'll come back to these claims in a moment. Now, they would also point out that the Ephesian Artemis was the patron goddess of women during childbirth. And according to Greek legend, Artemis had witnessed the pain of childbirth and had asked that she would never be able to become pregnant herself. And as the god and the patron saint of women in childbirth, when a woman is giving birth, uh, you know, Artemis holds the power of life and death over the mother. And if the pain is too great, in mercy, she can take the life of the mother to spare her from further agony. This, they posit, would explain why Paul then insists that women who seek Jesus will be saved through childbearing, because he's telling people who assume that that was Artemis' job, that in fact, no, that is the God of the Bible, not Artemis, who holds the power of life and death in the midst of childbearing. With this context developed, the egalitarian approach then sees Paul giving a temporary injunction to prohibit from the preaching role women who have, may have been influenced by the Artemis cult and therefore may be tempted to be dominant. This egalitarian understanding of the, of, of the passage uh, sees Paul uh, wanting men to stop arguing at church and instead pray, and he wants women to stop trying to take over without authorization and instead learn so that perhaps someday they can be in that role. Paul, they argue, is not making a universal prohibition on women preaching, but a qualification that they should first learn. This egalitarian approach also, like the complementarian approach, has some things going for it. Its research on the word translated to hold authority over does provide some very good academic level insight into what Paul might have been talking about. It does typically carry that negative sense when it's used of one person exercising authority over another person or, or taking advantage of them. This egalitarian view is the standard view within the Christian Reformed Church, within the Evangelical Covenant Order Presbyterian Church, many churches in the Wesleyan and Holiness tradition, the Assemblies of God, and is also held by Christian leader N.T. Wright. So we see two views here, the traditional complementarian view that sees the authoritative teaching offices set aside for specific qualified males, the egalitarian view that says that gender should not even be factored in because God equally calls men and women to all kinds of roles, and this was a temporary injunction specifically at the abuse of taking authority when it doesn't rightfully belong to you. Now I'm going to give you a third view. If you're not confused yet. And if this is your first Sunday here, let me just point out again, like last week, that this is a particularly technical sermon. Uh, and, and next week I'll tell some stories. Okay? I promise. A so what's been called a soft complementarian view is yet another third approach. And it is the least commonly held among, you know, American evangelicals but it is the most common view among conservative Anglicans globally. Um, and it tries to carve out a path that plays to the strengths of each, uh, and yet with a degree of nuance. This understanding is sometimes called soft complementarianism, though I don't think anybody likes that descriptor. Um, but it doesn't have a catchy name like complementarian or egalitarian. You know, it's just, it doesn't really have a name. But it begins by observing that God does at times have a reason to want a particular office or position to be held by a man. And if it's an inverted pyramid, that means men at the bottom, not men at the top, as servants, as slaves. Uh, that was the case with the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament. And when the Bible speaks of elders, it points out that it does typically assume that they're 
male, you know, and talking about the husband of one wife as a term for monogamy, there's this assumption that it's probably going to be a group of men um, as just a historical given, and so at first it has a strong affinity for the complementarian approach. But this third approach questions whether the case for complementarianism is as clear as advocates suggest. In particular, this approach raises the question of what the term to teach meant within Paul's letters generally and specifically within the pastoral epistles. Paul says, to teach, I do not allow a woman. But does teach mean the same thing as we mean when we talk about preaching a sermon? In his book, Hearing Her Voice, Australian conservative Anglican priest and theologian John Dixon, professor of public Christianity at Wheaton, examines Paul's different usage of the language. He writes this. He says, there are numerous public speaking ministries mentioned in the New Testament. Teaching, exhorting, evangelizing, prophesying, reading, and so on. And Paul restricts just one of them to qualified males. Teaching. Given that he repeatedly describes these functions as, in his words, different, it is essential to know what the apostle means when he uses teaching and whether the modern sermon is its true counterpart. There are several biblical activities other than teaching that look somewhat analogous to what we call a sermon, where an individual speaks to the congregation to nourish their Christian faith. And of these other activities, they're all open to women except the one called teaching. For Paul, teaching in the technical sense involved carefully preserving and laying down for the congregation the traditions handed on by the apostles. In the period before the texts of the New Testament were readily available, about the year 100 AD, a church's only access to the range of teachings uh, from the apostles and from Jesus uh, and the demands that Jesus and the apostles gave was through a teacher, the one who was entrusted with what Paul calls the apostolic deposit. At the time 1 Timothy was written in the early 60s AD, there was no New Testament canon. How, how then were these apostolic teachings about Jesus preserved and protected in the early churches, if not by written documents, but through the memorizing and rehearsing of fixed information the apostles had laid down for the churches, and that was the position of teacher as opposed to uh, as opposed to apostle or as opposed to elder. Um, thus, he writes, these, thus Paul names teachers as the ones charged with memorizing and passing on the teachings of and about Jesus as initially laid down by the apostles. Numerous references to this set of traditions make clear that although it wasn't written down yet, it was still a body of fixed content. The traditions are variously described as the apostolic deposit in 1st and 2nd Timothy, as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints in Jude, as the traditions that were delivered or received in 1st Corinthians and Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians. Frequently this body of material is called the teaching in Romans, in 1st Timothy, in Titus, where it is clear that such teachings do not refer to the biblical expositions but to recently transmitted apostolic traditions that had not yet been inscripturated as the New Testament. Scholars note that to be delivered or received are Paul's favorite technical terms for the initial laying down of those oral traditions. In other words, there was no authoritative body of texts. There were only authoritative custodians of that tradition as the New Testament was being collected, copied, and, dis and distributed. 
Thus, the authority as the New Testament came to be transferred from the teachers to the text of the New Testament. And the role of teacher, which had been carried by apostles and certain trained and entrusted elders, disappeared. The New Testament became instead that perfect collection of that original deposit. John Dixon writes that deposit of faith is now deposited in a set of texts. It resides not in uniquely authorized men, called teachers, but in the fixed form of the New Testament writings. I can see how an expository sermon exhorts people on the basis of this apostolic deposit, but no one preserves and lays down this deposit in the way that a teacher in the New Testament period was charged. As vital as biblical exposition is for the life of the church, he writes, when Paul refers to teaching, he never means explaining and applying a Bible passage. Rather, he consistently means carefully preserving and laying down for a church what the apostles had said concerning Jesus and his ministry, something that's now there for us in the New Testament. For example, in, first, in 2 Timothy 1, you hear all of this coming together. Paul writes, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. That's three things that are different. Preacher, apostle, and teacher. They are not identical. He says, uh, which is why I suffer as I do, because he was appointed all three of these. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, following the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. With all of the above in mind, the crucial occurrence of the verb to teach in 1 Timothy 2 is most naturally read in view of how Paul used it in all of his writings, and especially in the pastoral epistles, which is most of the time where he uses it. We see women speaking in church in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul describes a woman who prays and prophesies during a worship service. There is nothing prohibiting a woman from exhorting the church and some women were prophets, and 1 Corinthians 14 states specifically that one of the things prophets did was to speak edification and exhortation, in other words, to preach. So while this soft complementarian approach notes that the Bible assumes that pastors, priests, elders were typically male, the approach does not see 1 Timothy 2 as a prohibition on women preaching. And this view argues that given that no human being today ever does what Paul spoke of as teaching, we have the New Testament instead, then this passage is seen as not prohibiting women from any current church office. Elders might be regularly male, but Jesus could, within this view, raise up women in that role without violating his word. That doesn't mean that he absolutely will do so, only that he could. And with this reading, then, the church should at least be open to the possibility that God might at some point choose to call women as elders. This soft complementarian approach like the other two, also has strengths. In particular, it's research on Paul's use of the verb to teach as a technical term for delivering the deposit that became the New Testament. It can also be commended for trying to distinguish between what is a binding requirement or prohibition and what's generally a good idea or a general pattern. You know, sometimes we Christians want to write with a sharpie when God might rather have us write with a number two pencil. This soft complementarian approach was advocated by figures like Anglican John Stott, who the BBC called the evangelical pope. 
by Puritan expert J.I. Packer, author of Knowing God, by Craig Blumberg of Denver Seminary, Graham Cole of Peace and Divinity School, and Christopher Wright of Langham Partnership. All of these approaches, the complementarian, the egalitarian, and the soft complementarian, are allowed within the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and each of these has its strengths. Each also has questions that has to be answered. For the complementarian understanding, the question is, are you sure you're understanding how Paul uses the terms to teach and the term to hold authority? And is there a context historically within Ephesus or textually within Paul's letters that this reading is missing? For the egalitarian understanding, there are questions. There's been a lot of research in the last 15 years uh, on the um, Artemis cult within Ephesus. Uh, Jan Bremer in 2008 did the first exhaustive study since 1922. Uh, he's at the University of Groningen, and he found, for example, that uh, the female priests in Ephesus were only there for one year, and it was always a 12 or 13-year-old girl. It was an honorary thing, and she lasted for one year, and she always served under a male priest who controlled all the power and the money. And so that assumption raises questions. How essential is that fact for um, the egalitarian reading? And the egalitarian reading also has to ask the question of, is this reading doing what some other revisionist readings have done of other passages in other contexts where something doesn't seem to fit and so you import a foreign context in order to change the meaning of the text. Is that what's happening here? That question has to be answered. And the soft complementarian understanding also has to answer some questions. For example, if Paul is not prohibiting women from being elders or priests or pastors, then why did it take the church over 1600 years to think let's start doing this? have to answer that. Is it cultural? Is it theological? What was going on? And how do you understand the fact that in the very next chapter, elders are said to have to be able to teach? Using that technical term of Paul, uh, was that a temporary thing? Because nobody does that anymore if the soft complementarian view is right. But what would that mean for Junia if, in fact, she was an apostle and by implication, therefore, also an elder? See, none of these approaches can claim certainty. Each has questions it has to answer. Uh, no one gets to be neutral. The burden of proof is on all of us, and it can get complicated. So whichever reading you find most persuasive, what are some things that we can all take away from this? One, Scripture interprets Scripture. All of these views are trying to make the Bible not contradict itself. They're all trying to give a consistent message here, uh, and that's a good thing. Secondly, there are some times when Christians are going to disagree because they find this case more compelling or that case more compelling. And some of us, it's whichever one we read last seems to be the most compelling. You know, there are times where we can't have 100% certainty about the implications of a passage. We're reading the mail of people who died 2,000 years ago. The, the conservative Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren has said, I'm not sure it's possible to be certain. At best, I'm 80% certain and yet she still went forward into the priesthood. See, a lack of certainty can be okay because Jesus gives us grace when we're wrong. My own views have shifted, which means I've always been wrong about something, and I'm probably wrong either now or then because I've been espousing different views. And yet Jesus loves sinners, and he just wants us to be willing to believe whatever he says. If 
The Bible said that pink is green. Would I accept that? Yes. <laughs> that makes sense to me. It's a mystery. It doesn't say that, by the way. But that's that question of authority. God chooses to use men and women alike to spread his message of salvation because that's what Jesus died to call out of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. We're all equally united to Jesus. And so my view is, Lord, whatever you want, <laughs> whatever you want, help me understand, forgive me where I'm wrong, and Lord, help me to love and have unity with people who come to conclusions that might be a little different than my own. A story is told of, or a story that's a little told in the secular West is the story of the great Chinese Bible women of the 18 and 1900s when Christian missionaries first began reaching China in the 1800s, uh, European missionaries very quickly found out that in a Confucian context, they would have no access to Chinese women to bring the welcome of Jesus. And so they began bringing uh, usually unmarried Christian women to China in order to train up a generation of women leaders to help reach uh, uh, the people of China, and they became known as the Bible women. I think we've got a photo, if we can figure out how to slide that in, of some of the Chinese Bible women. They would go into towns and villages, and they would set up schools and, and medical stations, and many of them opened and also led house churches. They would preach revival among existing churches, and they'd preach the gospel in public settings as well. And... Um, they became, you know, during the, 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 the time when Western missionaries fled after Japan invaded China in the 1930s, it was these Bible women, thousands of them, who led the churches very often and continued to preach the gospel uh, within their own context. They were prominent during the rapid growth of Chinese house churches during the 1980s and 1990s. And by that point, the majority of Chinese house churches were actually led by unpaid, usually women, called Bible women. Uh, one particular, in fact, the greatest of these China, Chinese Bible women was a woman by the name of Dora Yu. We've got a photo of Dora Yu as well. During her lifetime, she was considered uh, one of the two greatest evangelists in all of China. Her father had been the first Christian in his family and was ordained a Presbyterian minister. Dora was born in 1873 while her father was still at seminary. She studied medicine and she became uh, one of the first women doctors to graduate from her university. She then served as a missionary in Korea for six years before returning to China in 1903 to preach the gospel as an evangelist. In 1904, she gave up practicing medicine to focus full-time on being a missionary to the people of China. She severed all financial support from Europe and America and would henceforth lead her ministry for decades by faith, trusting that God would provide whatever financial or other resources were needed. She went into full-time preaching of the gospel throughout southern China. In the late 1910s, the situation of the revival movement developed such that it was often said that the north had Ding Li Mei and the south had Dora Yu. She reached hundreds of thousands of people in her lifetime. She, 
She, her, her ministry was born of a desire to pursue union with Christ, to live in his presence. She would pray every day asking God to give me live life in the heavenly realm, to keep me dead to sin and alive to God, to give me a spirit of obedience and childlike compliance to God's will, to possess my life, that God would possess my life and prompt me to take into account the needs of others, that he would soak me with his love so that I might be like God in my love toward others and that he would help me see the things of this world from God's point of view and always watchfully await the return of the Lord of glory. She said, I'm still very naive in many ways and ignorant as well, yet God has nonetheless used my feeble witness to bless his people. Among those she led to Christ at a revival meeting at the Church of the Heavenly Peace in Fuzhou in 1920 was a woman named Lin Heping, later known as Peace Lin. And a few months later, Dora led to Christ uh, Lin's 17-year-old son, Watchman Nee. Both Lin and her son Nee went on to become prominent evangelists in China. Watchman Nee would spend the last two decades of his life imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution under Chairman Mao. In 1927, Dora Yu traveled to England to give the keynote address at the Keswick Convention, which at that point was the largest global mission convention. During her speech, she warned against the dangerous theological trends then sweeping Europe and America, and she warned of the erosion of biblical authority in Western churches and seminaries, and she pleaded with the Americans and Europeans to please, please quit sending to China missionaries who don't believe the Bible. Dora Yu, tired from decades of service to Christ and his people, died in Shanghai in 1931. We talk about Billy Graham and the big Anglo-American evangelists, but through her ministry, she's reached indirectly over 100 million people in mainland China. A sister and a mother in the faith who humbly spent her life and energy pointing all people to life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the salvation you give us Christ.